I really want to talk about one of the most important uh, aspects of the internal arts, really. Um, and that's really the sort of um, the higher aspects of the training, if you like, that the spiritual component in them. So if you look at an art like Qigong or meditation or even yoga or, or something like this, often the, the, the deeper meanings of those arts have, have kind of been lost. Uh, for many, many cases, you know, or, or sometimes people pay lip service uh, to these things, but they're not really discussed in any great detail. And maybe we could say that these arts have evolved a little bit uh, with regards to how they're seen or what their purpose is. So, for example, most people now would practice Qigong as a form of medicine, or a medical art, or health preservation, or uh, to make sure their immune system is strong or something like this or to make sure they age well and that's all cool That's okay. You know, that's great. That's a good development yoga a lot of people practice that for health these days and and sometimes the terminology in yoga uh, And by yoga, I meaning specifically asana practice generally that people will talk about higher things They talk about chakra they talk about kundalini and, and things like this, but actually No one's really touching on that hardly, you know, maybe the, the words are there but the practice is not really about that. It's become a form of stretching, you know. Meditation, the same. Oftentimes, people use meditation and they're talking about something to relax them or to give them a sense of mindfulness, better connection between the mind and the body. Tai Chi. Tai Chi has become a health art or, or something like this. And, uh, you know, all of these arts, they all had at their core a connection to Eastern philosophy originally. So really, when we're looking at Eastern philosophy, what we're looking at, I mean, we're talking about Hinduism, Buddhism, or Taoism primarily. I mean, Confucianism was, had a, an influence throughout society in that part of the world, and, and China, and had an influence upon the arts. But really, the kind of the crux of the Eastern traditions of their teachings came from Hinduism, Buddhism, and, and Taoism. And as you, I'm sure you know that Buddhism essentially had a shared root with Hinduism anyway. It was kind of like an evolution of it in, in many ways, or, or a... Maybe the Hindus wouldn't like that, you know what I mean? But they have a, they have a shared root to them, certainly. Taoism, um, its traditions are quite hard to separate from Buddhism these days because it incorporated uh, a lot of Buddhist uh, teachings. Into it. And sometimes people try to like, fully extrapolate the two out, but it's almost impossible. Uh, they're so intertwined with one another that the, the, the Buddhist theories keep coming up over and over. Within Chan Buddhism in China, um, you know, Taoism permeates that tradition too. So there's been this intermingling of these three traditions. And all of them then filtered into arts like Qigong or, or meditation um, or yoga, you know, coming out of India. And, and people might say, well, these arts didn't originally come from Taoism. They didn't originally come from Buddhism or, or whatever. That's possibly true. Like, Maybe, you know, I'm not a historian, but you can't really deny that they were influenced by and absorbed the philosophy of those traditions, even if that wasn't the original starting point of where these arts came from. Maybe Qigong did not come from Taoism originally, who knows? But definitely it incorporated its, its teachings, it incorporated its mindset. We can't really deny that Buddhists and Hindus and, and Taoists have been practicing these arts for cultivation purposes for generations, uh, you know, and, and there's a reason for that. And the main reason for this was because they viewed that these tools could be used for um, something higher, could be used for the, the highest parts of their traditions, which was essentially um, to realize enlightenment or, or immortality or, or the highest parts of their, their tradition to go to Nibbana or, or, or to achieve Tao or, or to find Brahma or something, whatever their tradition was talking about, the highest end of their, their arts. 
of their of their practice of their of their philosophy. They they understood the arts could take them there. So really, if we want to define what any of those things are, and it's a bit of a crass term, but really we could say that that's the spiritual side of the art, right? Spiritual side of the art. So nowadays you'll see the word, or you'll hear the word spiritual thrown around, right? You'll hear it thrown around, so I'm doing this because it's spiritual, or I'm a spiritual person, or, or something like so. And, and okay, that, that term spiritual has lots of connotations. What can it mean? It can mean self-improvement, it can mean self-development, it can mean psychological improvement. It can even mean, in some cases, some people use it to mean something that improves my, even my physical, not just my psychological health. But I would argue that, that none of those things are literally spiritual, if you like. Like, I don't, if we're looking at the most direct term, and I'm a bit of a stickler for terms, like spiritual means to work with spirit, right? And, and really, um, if you were to overlay that concept onto the, the Eastern traditions, what you really mean is you're looking at using these arts to practice the highest ends of, of what they're talking about. And really what they're talking about, if you're going to practice spiritually, you're going to turn your art into a spiritual art, is we need to understand the place of spirit, the place of soul, um, and the place of divinity, or the highest aspect of the art, whatever they want to call it. If it's not being practiced at that level, or that is not the, the direction that the art is going, if that's not in your mindset, then you can't really say it's spiritual. You know, I think sometimes, not if you're being strict with the terms, I think sometimes people mix um, psychological and spiritual up quite often. So I practice yoga, I practice qigong because it makes me feel happy, um, so therefore it's spiritual. And that's not really the case, actually, that's psychological, that's psychology. Psychology and spirit are very different things. The psychology is based within the mind, based within the psyche, um, and spirit is at a much deeper place. We could say a higher place, but a much deeper place. Um, so they're not the same thing. We could say that, argue that you need to improve your psychology maybe to access spirit, but, but it's, not, it's not really spiritual. So if, if you go onto social media these days and you, you skim down all of the Instagram spiritual posts, the vast majority of them are psychological. Most of them are about a well-being. I would say that's health. Um, or they're about developing sort of uh, focus and clarity and enjoyment of life, maybe bliss. That's psychological to me. That's not spiritual. Um, and actually, a spiritual specifically to me means to work with the spirit or the soul. That's it. That's what I'm talking about. That's what, that's what it means to me. That's what it means. So I would say that when you first start out in something like Qigong, for the majority of people, myself included, when you first start out, you're not practicing spiritually. You can't be, not really, unless you have an innate connection to your you know, awareness of something higher that most people don't have. You're not practicing spiritually. You're practicing bodily, often in the beginning. Uh, you're practicing for your health. Maybe you're practicing to feel good for psychology, or maybe, maybe you have the aim of spiritual development, but you're not really practicing at the level of of spirit. It's not a spiritual practice yet, and it can take a while to evolve your art towards that stage where it becomes a, a spiritual practice. Not everybody's interested in that, you know. Like some people um, just want to do it for health, that's fine. Some people don't believe in all of that. You get this whole um, sort of scientific uh, mindset, sort of Western sort of way of looking at it, where people aren't really interested in what the more spiritual, they're not interested in the Hinduism, they're not interested in the Buddhism or the Taoism that you know, that permeates through all these traditions. Um, and that's okay, that's fine, that's no problem at all. 
But for people that are interested in the literal sense of making their art spiritual or, or taking, for me, taking the art to its full potential, really, um, if we're to, you know, believe the, the many gurus and masters that have come before us, then really you need to understand what do they mean within these arts? What is the, the root of Buddhism, of Hinduism, of Taoism? What do they mean? Now, one of the key components to me that we need to understand in order to explore the meaning of spirituality according to Eastern traditions is this idea of the soul. What is the soul? You know, we, we hear this phrase bandied around all the time in the West as well. We have a different idea of it, don't we, of the soul? Um, but, you know, you hear people say, this person has soul, this person has no soul. That's not really considered negative, and you say that about me quite a lot. Or maybe we say that a piece of art has soul, or music has soul, or, or in religious context, people need to save their soul. Or maybe people have sold their soul to the devil, or, or something like this. You know, there's all these phrases come up. So the soul is, is, is something that's within our culture, within, within our, maybe not a current belief systems for a lot of people, but it's in ancient beliefs. But they don't necessarily mean the same thing as they do within the Eastern traditions, almost. Very, very close. But um, maybe, um, maybe we could say that the soul is a similar thing. I, hear, I, I often hear, to contradict myself, I often hear people say, you know, Christianity and Eastern traditions are very different. And, and I hear people in Eastern traditions very happily slagging Christianity. You know, it's like, oh, it's rubbish, it's rubbish, it's rubbish. And I, I heard that recently from someone giving a talk, and they were really anti-Christianity. Uh, and they were talking, what were they talking about? Talking about heaven, well, the, the concept of heaven from a Christian uh, point of view and, and slating it. And then they would go, but then really, you know, we understand heaven in the Eastern traditions. And then they explained heaven from the Eastern traditions. It's pretty much the same concept. They could have been using that description to explain uh, Christian heaven. It's just that, um, well, A, they took an oversimplistic view of Christianity. I think they looked at heaven in the sort of child's level of it's a place in the clouds where you go to meet God or something, whereas most mature Christians or people who have explored their tradition in greater detail, not child-level thinkers, have realized that actually it's talking about a deeper concept. There's another aspect to it. And I think that the person giving that talk, actually, if they had been a little less biased towards Christianity because their own experiences during an upbringing, during their upbringing or something, and they'd have seen that actually the concepts once again, are quite similar. And the same happens with the soul. There are similarities. We don't discuss it in the same way, but there are similarities, you know. Oh, excuse me. I have to drink some water. It's very hot here in the, in the middle of the summer, here on lockdown in, in uh, Portugal. Or not lockdown, sort of lockdown. No one knows if we're on lockdown or not anymore, do they? It's like the country was locked down, but now it's not, but, but no one's flying in because of the 14-day quarantines and everything. So you're pretty much like, this is a ghost town still, um, which is fine. I'm actually quite enjoying the peace, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. But yeah, it's, it's pretty warm here. So if I, if I sweat profusely, I apologize for my disgustingness. What was I talking about? The soul. So the soul, really, um, it's the first thing that... I think that somebody wants to understand the spiritual side of the tradition of their practice wants to understand. And now the soul is the soul is discussed in Taoism. Sometimes people say it's not, which I think is really weird because it is. It's quite clearly discussed. Um, the soul is uh, has quite very specific teachings on it. Um, and Hinduism has a soul, and then Buddhism has a weird approach to the soul. Because if you ask most Buddhists, they say we don't believe in the soul. Or, or the soul is still another, they don't say they don't believe in the soul, they say it's another form of delusion, another form of, 
another form of um, you know delusion that has to be cut through and they do because they don't believe they believe in uh, like no self no soul to the to the point of it not being there but actually um, if you actually look at the concept of, of no soul uh, it's not that different from the concept of soul curiously because once people can actually merge with the soul or experience the soul within Hinduism or Taoism the first thing that happens um, is it starts to break down or it starts to merge with uh, spirit which ultimately leads to the idea of there being no individuated soul so it's not that different anyway it's it's kind of wordplay semantics people are arguing over as much as anything between the different traditions now the soul becomes uh, vitally uh, important for these arts because of and this is the crux of it reincarnation reincarnation so the idea was that within Buddhism we were stuck in the samsaric cycle, the cycle of samsara. Um, Taoism also agreed, although they didn't have very specific teachings on it. Taoism is very much a tradition that didn't believe that you should have um, very strong concepts, very strong models of something that was beyond your control. So very much they tended to focus on, on the body that you owned, uh, the environment of your body, the environment of your energy system, the environment of your mind. Um, but they didn't discuss things that were beyond this immediate part of yourself. The idea being that if people could work with what was immediately apparent to them at that moment, um, the other stuff would become available to them. And you didn't have to have such strict models, such strict concepts that would become sort of um, cruxes or, or, or limitations on your development. But still, despite that, they still believed in reincarnation and they still had the view of, of the soul being the, the, the sort of the vehicle through which this happened. Hinduism the same. Hinduism also um, recognized the soul. I mean, the teachings come from there, come from that place. So the soul is that part of you that reincarnates. And, and this is where it's similar to our Western idea of the soul, because in this, the description of the soul is often something that is eternal, something that, that carries on, you know, um, even if we discuss how that process happens a little bit differently. So do you need to believe in reincarnation to um, approach the spiritual sides of the Eastern arts? This is the big question, isn't it? Because not a lot of, not, well, I say not a lot of people, a lot of people do believe in reincarnation. Although a lot of people pay lip service to it, don't they? But they, they say they believe in it, but they don't. Um, I see that quite a lot. But say you have some people who really do believe in reincarnation or, or they know it to be the truth, um, then you know, it's easy for them. But someone who doesn't believe in reincarnation, someone who doesn't believe in that, the question I would have, and I don't have an answer for you, how helpful is that, is why would you become so interested in the spiritual side of the art, in the most literal use of the term spirit. Because ultimately, the, the reason for attaining connection to spirit um, originally was to achieve freedom uh, from, some, from samsara, from the, the cycle of suffering, and to end the sort of reincarnation cycle, to master this, to become immortal, according to the Taoists, or, or enlightened. It's not the same as being awakened. Awakened is... Um, you know, a realization of the nature of self. Could you argue that's spiritual? Yeah, I guess so. I suppose that falls under the category. But it's still not the same as the, the escape of the reincarnation cycle, which was really the aim of people um, that were interested in these spiritual arts to, to, to break that natural unfolding of life, that, that, that took existence that took place life to life to life. And the soul was the key to this, uh, the sort of realization of the nature of soul. So no, I don't have an answer. That's not helpful, is it? You know, I would say that a lot of people that say, remember what I think a lot of people when they say they're practicing spiritually, 
I'm not, a, and again, I don't mind how people use the terms, but according to my terminology, I would say they're practicing psychologically rather than, rather than spiritually. I say they're practicing psychologically. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but to me, um, a slightly different thing. So the soul is discussed differently within the tradition, but not that differently, not that differently. I mean, if we start with Hinduism, I mean, Hinduism has three um, parts that, of your beingness, if you want, or non-beingness, it doesn't matter, three parts of you that they would discuss in, in great depth um, within spiritual teachings or, and how you related to these things and, and where your point of reference was for your sense of being ultimately was dependent, you know, dictated how you were doing with your spiritual arts. So your spiritual practice. So the first of these is Brahma, which is, um, you know, divinity. Some people would uh, call it uh, God. I've seen people equate it with God, and that's not really a, an accurate description, or maybe because Hinduism has lots of, you know, personification of, of Godhead as various deities, maybe you could connect it to that. But ultimately, Brahma, Brahma is, um, it's like, it's undifferentiated spirit. It's, it's the same as, as Nirvana. It's, it's the highest state of spiritual attainment. You know, it's, it's non-dual, it's beyond definition. But Brahma sits there at that, like the, the highest, the pinnacle of achievement. Underneath this, you could maybe equate, um, you could maybe equate Brahma with Tao, but not quite. Because Tao is more, Brahma is more linked to maybe how Yuan Shen would merge into Tao, if you understand much about sort of alchemical terminology. Um, but definitely it's like the divine state. Underneath this, you have Atman. And oftentimes people call Atman the soul, um, but that's not true. Atman is undifferentiated consciousness. It's not soul. Um, that's a little different. You could say maybe undifferentiated soul, like collective soul perhaps, but it's not individual soul. Individual soul is, is jiva. Uh, jiva is uh, essentially that uh, aspect of yourself that we can equate with the soul from, from Hinduism, not Atman, it's jiva. So the reason we can say that is because essentially the, the soul's reincarnation is largely dependent upon the action of, of karma. That's understood within uh, Hinduism especially. Karma, most people know, is, is cause and effect. That's not quite right. Um, karma kind of means, uh, they describe it, they, they, they define it literally as action. That's like the, the, the def strict definition of it, I guess. But really, karma is kind of, the word action, it does imply your own action, but it also implies an action um, of the cosmos, if you like, an, act, uh, as an as action of the universe, like a, a natural action that unfolds, and this is karma, cosmic action. So karma has various parts. So without going into definitions of akama, karma, vikama, and things like the different types of, ultimately what we know um, is that karma is essentially that thing that, that provides a little bit of weight to the soul, that anchors it down uh, into life. You know? Now the reason that the soul enters down into life is because of the weight of karma. You can think of the soul as being almost like a, a helium balloon. You know? This is the, the helium balloon. And, and the sense of identity gives it the shape uh, of, of the balloon, but then the, the, the helium balloon is weighed down by something, and it's got a weight attached to the string, and that is the karma. And then what happens is that the weight of that karma enables the soul to keep reincarnating and being born over and over again. This is the idea. When the karma is free, or the soul is free from the karma, then the idea is the soul can merge upwards. It can merge upwards, so it returns first to Atman and then to Brahma within uh, Hindu traditions, or ultimately within 
Taoism, they would simply say that it's separated from the cycle of rebirth, and then and then a person can go up to the, the heavens, you know, the sort of spiritual realm, um, whatever you want to say. This is this is really what they're trying to do. So the soul is is essentially weighed down by the karma, and this is the jiva within Hinduism rather than the atman that's, that's affected in this way. So we can equate the jiva with the soul, I think. Now, or, or what we understand as the soul in the West. Now, what happens is as the soul receives uh, this sort of karma, this natural action that unfolds upon it, and then it starts to uh, develop uh, various qualities. One of these qualities is, is, is essentially like a, a habitual action starts to be developed at the center of your being. So what you have is a distortion upon your, your way of being. So if you had a natural, maybe we could say like a natural perfect, it's a, it's a crass word, it's not the right word, but you know, like a, a centered perfect nature in the center of you, then what happens is the, the influence of the karma upon the, your being starts to create habitual actions. So what, uh, what I mean by that is, um, you know, past experiences and karma that's been given to you and things like this, uh, what they start to do is then when you have an experience, there's an automatic reaction to it. You might not know it, you might think it's a conscious reaction, but often that, that thing has been created from a bias uh, from within you. That's what's happened. So every time you have an experience or you've learned something, that knowledge accumulates, and then you judge everything else according to it. So it's, it's very difficult to see something in its purest sense. It's almost impossible, you know. So you, you have an experience, and then it's like this vast uh, database um, that, they, that is stored within you. It's actually called the samskaras within... Um, Hindu writings, um, and some people said translate the samskaras as like a place where the traumas sit, or something like that. But it's more than that. It's not just negative things. It's every experience you've ever had. This is your vast database of experience that has influenced uh, your sense of self. You know, and what happens is when that experience comes in, it's run against that database, almost like a policeman sat in an office when he's not out there killing people on the streets. You know, and, and what happens is uh, in comes a, a you know a sort of photograph of somebody runs it against the police ID computers to see if there's a match or something. Very similar in my strange mind to what's happened when the experiences come in and you run this against this vast database that you already have contained within you. Now, what happens is when that information comes in, it's run against the database, then it's judged. It's judged on preference. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a positive thing? Is it a negative thing? Does it remind me of something that's happened before? Is there trauma attached to this idea because something bad has happened to me and it feels a bit like this? Or have I had this, even a simpler level, have I had this food before? Yeah, I've had that. I don't like that food. Oh, God, fucking, that's disgusting. Or something like that. And this process goes on inside your brain. And then what normally happens is a habitual reaction to it. So... We may override that reaction, but there's still a mental habitual reaction within me. Oh, no, I don't like that, or something. And this really, um, this is a vasana. This is a, an aspect of the soul expressing itself, the aspect of that thing which we identify with as our soul. The soul and the sense of self are very um, closely intertwined, but ultimately it's within Taoism, the idea was the sense of self was burying the soul, Okay, was burying that soul. And when the sense of self could be uh, mastered, I don't want to say eradicated, I don't want to say dissolved, I don't want to say purified, none of those things, I'm just going to say mastered and leave it vague. And if the sense of self could be worked with in, in such a way that the soul could be found um, and touched upon, then that was really the gateway uh, into, into the more spiritual uh, side of the art within the tradition. But we'll look at Taoism's understanding of it in a little bit. So these components 
essentially, uh, what they meant was that your soul was subject to prior experiences uh, and karma, the law of cosmic action upon the soul, which created a density, which gave it the ability to reincarnate. And then it also gave birth to unconscious um, reaction to something. Now, if you look at a small child, they often don't have the same sense of unconscious reaction. So when they have an experience, they truly have it. You ever watched a kid, you know, running through the woods and enjoying the trees and the plants and the puddles um, that it can splash around in and stuff like that and just loving it, loving every aspect of it. And, and maybe you remember, you know, I remember like being a kid and even looking at the most mundane of things, a pile of sticks on a step would be fascinating for some reason. You'd notice all those little details around you. Now as an adult, you don't notice anything. You don't notice anything at all. You don't notice the the patterns around you and the texture, not really. When you're out and about, you're almost like on autopilot. And part of the reason for that is because your soul is gone. Oh shit, that was really depressing. I didn't mean that. Your soul is not gone. <laughs> your sense of self is dominant. The soul is not really being touched in the same way. So what happens is these things come in and then you autopilot, you know, kind of run through the, the, the reactions uh, and run these ideas through your database. And you essentially, it means a lot of your mind is, is functioning in an unconscious way. These are habits, if you like, just habits that are running. And most of us, the large proportion of us, are largely running on habit. We don't realize it. We think we're fully in control, but we're not. The idea is that we have free will. Well, over some things, I'm sure we do, but over a lot of things, no, there's no free will. Uh, because already when you're having an experience, um, it's already run through this, this database once more. Now what happens is the more that that database is run, the more that um, habitual action is there, the more there's a reaction, a reactive way of being, the sense of self gets stronger, the jiva becomes more dominant, the soul moves more towards the back, and we can say that we generate more karma. Now when we generate more karma, um, we generate more potential for events, more potential for the way things unfold, more potential for a resonance with an event or something like this. But it's come from unconsciousness, like un not conscious action. It's come from habitual reaction to things that have come in. So ultimately what that means is that we then become, um, what could you say, blind, unaware to how karma is unfolding for us. So because karma is then unfolding for us in a blind fashion, we don't really know the cause and effect we're establishing around us. So then life starts to appear like it's random or unknown or we don't really understand it or, or maybe it looks like there's destiny or fate or a higher purpose or maybe there's no purpose or maybe we have poor luck. Maybe it feels like everything is against us. But actually, some of that might be true. Maybe you just have poor luck. But a lot of it is actually down to the fact you're unconscious of your habitual reactions to something and this is generating karma which is ultimately um, as far as I see it it's unconscious cause and effect unfolding for you almost like you're just blundering through life generating these issues now each of these things then causes an extra sense of identification for the self which creates more weight which anchors the soul more it becomes heavier and heavier and this becomes the process of rebirth, of reincarnation, or, or how the soul can reincarnate. They had various ways of, of tackling this, you know, within Eastern traditions. And, and they understood, I mean, karma and morals are not the same thing. This is something that people uh, mix up. Karma and ethics are not the same thing. 
So I've had this discussion uh, recently with some people about karma, and then I explain something from karma, just a simple concept, and then they come back with ethical things. But what about this? What if you poked a puppy in the eye or something, which would generate bad karma, but for a different reason. But they, they're coming up with these things. And even though I said karma and morals are not the same thing, I think it's a difficult concept to get your head around. So still they would come up with moralistic arguments against it, but it's not, it's not a moral thing, um, although morals and karma do run a line with each other to a large extent, but not fully. But it is hard, but karma largely um, is the result of, and, and this is the key where many of the Eastern practices come from, a lack of awareness. A lack of awareness of what's taking place. If you don't know the nature of your mind, if you don't know the way nature of the way that your mind is interfacing with the world, if you don't know the process um, that your mind goes through, when it receives information, if you don't know the actions of your body, if you don't know what you're doing, if you're running on habits, if you're running on autopilots, and all these little base habitual patterns are, are just sort of running like a computer program and you're not aware of it, you are generating karma. You're generating karma. Now, if you understand that, you can understand why the basis for many Eastern arts was mindfulness. Ting within Taoism, mindfulness within, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism, practices like sati, anapanasati, stuff like that, and um, to become acutely aware of the way you did things. So they would start with often mindfulness. If, you're, if you've ever been in a temple or a monastery, they, develop, they tell you to have mon uh, mindfulness of what you're doing. So the way you eat your food and the way you get out of your chair and the way you go to bed, like everything, you're just like acutely aware of every process that's taking place. But they do it through the body often first like this, or your actions, so that you're learning to eradicate automatic habits, you're eradicating that autopilot, and you're fully involved in what you're doing. Now they're using the body as a tool to teach you to develop a higher degree of awareness. And what you're developing an awareness is the causes. You're developing an awareness of the causes that lead to the effects, so that you can start to negate the accumulation of karma. That's ultimately what it's about. And I've seen people confused by that, because they think mindfulness is like, I don't know, like a form of meditation. Um, it is, I guess. My, you know, I mean, you think it's a sense of relaxation or a way to develop just concentration. Okay, it's true. But why? Well, really, it's because they're trying to alleviate the density upon the sense of self so that the soul could be found. This was the idea. So it's the basis of entering into spiritual work. It's very deep, you know. They would use the body often if you're in a temple setting or often within meditation. Many people are aware of um, becoming aware of, of the breath, like anapana, sati style meditation, um, which is, means to become aware of the in-breath and the out-breath ultimately. Now, they use the breath so that you're taking um, often an unconscious process that's unfolding because breathing is normally automatic um, for most of us and you're just uh, developing a mindfulness of this process but then what happens is the breath starts to lead you back into greater awareness of like uh, somatic experience in the body, um, depending on the meditation system you're in and things like this. Some systems like Taoism tend to, instead of the breath, they often use the body. Um, so you develop, it's a little bit trickier actually, like I think with the breath, awareness of the breath, mindfulness practice with the breath, you become very aware of the movements of the breath um, and the movements of the respiratory system. And it's quite a clear movement, you know, because something's opening, something's closing, ribs are expanding ribs are contracting, so on and so on. Taoism is a little trickier because often it does uh, develops mindfulness of the body instead. So even during their seated meditation, they tend to prefer ting into the structure. Um, <clears throat> but that's not just to stabilize the mind. It's also so you start to develop awareness of the somatic responses that are going on in your body, all the little feelings, all of the little sensations 
um, that are taking place within your, your system. And again, it's mindfulness of something that's largely become habitual, largely something that's become automatic. I should step back, actually, and explain something. Sometimes people, sometimes people don't know why you um, want awareness of the somatic experience in your, your body. Because it's an odd one, isn't it? Because you're supposed to develop an awareness of it, but at the same time, you're not supposed to focus on it or attach to it. Now, why? Well, there's an argument that if you attach to um, a somatic experience in the body, you amplify it. That's true. But actually, it's bigger than that. The experience that you feel, the somatic experience of your, your, your body, essentially is through your nervous system, right? That's what you feel things through. Even if you're feeling something more subtle, if you're feeling your chi, if you like, if you're feeling your prana, if you're feeling your energy, if you're feeling your blood flow, I don't know, whatever you're feeling, you're still feeling it through your nerves. Like the nerves are the thing that give you the feedback of that experience. <clears throat> it's the nervous system that carries that information. So this is your sensation, what you're feeling, right? And your sensation is said to, within the Eastern traditions, come from a few different places. Okay, there are the, the, sense, the nature, the quality of your sensation, a few things brought together. First is your body. Okay, so that's pretty obvious. That your, your body is going to be one of the components, the physical form is going to be one of the components of the experience of sensation. I mean, you know that the body itself doesn't actually experience sensation. The information is carried to the nervous system and registered by the brain, registered by the mind. It gives you the illusion, ultimately, of, of sensation, um, of, of something there. But, but ultimately, it's your body that registers it. Remember that you, you've never actually felt anything outside your body. Sometimes this confuses people. But like, say I'm holding this glass, right? I'm holding this glass. Or maybe I'm holding someone's hand or something. I've never actually felt the glass. Sometimes people miss this fact. You've never felt the glass. I've never actually, when holding someone's hands, I've never felt their hand. Never have. All I've ever felt or like, is my own hand, my own nerves. I've only felt what my hand feels when it touches the glass. I don't know what the glass feels like. I know what my reaction to the glass feels like within my, within my hand. And it's the same for everything. You've only ever experienced anything through the vehicle of this, this body with regards to somatic experience. Um, and that might sound obvious, but if you think about that, that that's quite major, and that has various, um, if you're not aware of that, that has various uh, impacts upon your training and impacts upon, uh, you know, how we view the body and, and, and so on, and we view life, we view existence. Especially when we look at the other two components for experience. Now, first, for somatic experience, the first is your body. The second um, is your, are your sense faculties. So, okay, your uh, sight, your hearing, your smell, your taste, your touch. Is that it? Yeah, and the sixth one, your mind. Okay, this is a, an aspect of the sense faculties in the Eastern Arts. So what they're implying is, okay, we know that touch, that sense, is to do with sense faculties. But also, um, what, we're also what they're also implying is that which you see, that which you smell, that which you hear, that which you taste, this also has an, ex an influence upon the somatic experience um, as well. All of the sense faculties are to do with, are do with this idea of how you experience things. You then have a third component, so you have your sense faculties, you have your body, and that is your stored information, your samskaras within Hinduism, um, the store place of the acquired mind within Taoism. This storehouse of information also affects the somatic experience in your body as well. Now that has big implication, because what that means is if your level of stored information changes, or the nature of the stored information within your body changes, so will somatic experience. 
and we will, I see this time and time again within the arts. So somebody who has um, had a trauma or something very unpleasant happen can react very different to the sensation of touch from another person to someone who's always had very positive experiences with people. And it's not just the mental reaction, but even the physical feeling can be very, very different as well. Um, it can be sort of cold and unpleasant. I've had people, especially I teach Chinese medicine, you know, and we take pulse taking. And I've had people who've had quite difficult experiences in the past, and someone will take their, even their pulse, just the fingers on the wrist, you know, not even anything else. And they'll be like, afterwards they say, oh, I didn't like that person's touch was cold and icy and, and painful. And I think, all right, okay. And I, I let that person put their, and I'm fairly chilled, you know, and they put their fingers on my pulse, and I don't, it's not cold, it's not sharp or anything like this. It's different to me, it just feels like fingers on the wrist, or it feels quite pleasant. Yet other people, it's less pleasant to me. And some people might say, oh, yeah, it's because your energies are not interacting or something equally as New Age. But actually, it's, it's more likely to do with the, the stored information that the person already has who is receiving that sensation. And what happens is they're running that person against the database of their prior experiences um, and the resultant habitual reaction to who they present as, their gender, their appearance, their loudness, their smell, their name, who knows, their nationality, if you're racist, who knows. But when they're running all that through their system, what's happening is that producing habitual reaction that then changes the somatic experience that takes place within the body. Now, that happens over and over and over again, all the way through your life until some people are touch phobic and all sorts of things like this, and some people become hypersensitive and, and, and things like that. But if you develop an awareness of these reactions, then, you know, through mindfulness, then gradually they stop being automatic, they stop being habitual, and you start to develop uh, a stronger um, ability to see through the falsity of them, if you like. Now, if you attach to the sensations, if you focus on the sensations, the somatic experiences, all you're doing is you're training to mind, your mind to reinforce the database's influence upon your somatic experience of life. If, however, you detach from them, you are not reinforcing that pattern anymore. You are not strengthening the samskaras. You're not strengthening the vasanas. Instead, you are loosening them because you're developing an awareness of something that's previously been habitual. Remember, it's habitual reactions that build that database within your body. And the greater the awareness with an open, non-judgmental sense of detachment uh, means that that awareness come up. And, and then you're, actually the somatic sensation in your body will change. And because it's in your nervous system, it means your nervous system relaxes. And as soon as your nervous system relaxes, you start to move out of fight or flight and everything becomes more pleasant. Life becomes more, more pleasant. Your health becomes better. Like everything just becomes easier. So this is why somatic experience is such a major thing. So how does this relate to the spirit? Well, the greater the level of this database you have stored, the samskaras, the greater your level of habitual reactions um, within your, your mind, within your being, the greater the level of karmic accumulation within your being, the greater your sense of self, the greater you identify with that erroneous part of yourself that's been built up over a period of time. Now, that thing you identify with is often produced from habitual reaction, so it's not conscious. So you're, you're identifying with a habitual thing, and that eradicates free will, because habit and free will don't go together. I mean, that is the, the enemy of free will, is habit. You know, that's the very nature of what those things are, right? Because habits are automatic. So 
the more I become conscious of that process, the more I start to dis or less identify with that sense of self. It doesn't mean it's not there. You don't necessarily lose your personality, but that's not your point of reference. You can step back from that. If people do this to a high degree, this is why they start having all those experiences where they suddenly become, you know, these, well, they're very difficult to, experience, to explain, aren't they? But those kind of um, altered states where they become aware of the nature of their being or aware of the idea of non-self, they enter into anatman and, and this starts to dissolve and they touch something deeper into stillness of mind and emptiness. These things can arise because of awareness of the nature of those things that have become habitual um, until you start to move beyond them. And this enables you to access your soul. I mean, this is the basis of it. It starts to lead you to that state. Another place where that happens, like where is one of the places people are very, very mindful if they're good at it? That's art. Art is incredibly mindful. You, uh, not some of the, not like, you know what I mean, travel lodge, hotel, wall art. Not that. That's, that's awful. Not garden gnomes. That's not art. That's fucking terrible. But when I'm talking, saying someone's producing an actual work of art, like something that is beautiful, something that is soulful, I mean, for want of a better term, and they absorb it. You watch them produce that artwork. They are so mindful. They are so absorbed into that work. Every second of what they're doing, the, 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 a true artist doesn't even notice the world around them. It's gone. They forget to eat. They forget to sleep. They're just absorbed in that painting. They are so mindful at that stage that they actually f experience non-habitual reaction. They free themselves from their, their sense of self-temporary. Now comes the soul. And this is why we say that beautiful art has soul within it. It is soulful. Because then the soul, as much as anything, likes to express itself. And it expresses itself through, through beauty. And, and that happens through this kind of way. And this is why art can lead there. Dance can lead there. Things like this. Martial arts, if people aren't idiots and obsessed with street defense and stuff like that, then it can also lead to this um, idea of you know, touching the soul, touching that thing that is expressed because of the level of mindfulness involved. It's quite beautiful. <laughs> mm. Now in Taoism, the soul is discussed a little bit differently because the soul has ten parts in, in Taoism. <gasps> ten components. Does it literally have ten parts? No, not really. It's not a fragmented thing, is it? It doesn't have a physical form, so you know, we can't really talk about that. But they, they break it into ten parts just to um, give you a conceptual model to work with, really. I said that Taoism doesn't like conceptual models, but it has some. So basically, the soul in Taoism is comprised of uh, one section made of one, one grouping of three and one grouping of seven. The grouping of three um, is the hun. So the hun is known as the yang aspect of your soul. Um, it's related to the element of wood within Chinese medicine, but that's not important. But the yang aspect of your soul is comprised of three parts. Um, and this is um, Changling, I think, Taiguang, and Youshen, often they're known as. And these are the three um, aspects of your yang soul, yang aspect of soul. Now, the yang aspect of soul really is what we understand soul, um, how we understand soul within the other traditions. So the yang aspect of soul is that part of your being that carries on life after life after life, reincarnating you. I do a podcast on reincarnation sometime, actually, what's involved in that. That might be an interesting one, I do that. But um, if you don't want that, just leave comments under and say, no, that's boring, and I'll do something else instead. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so the yang aspect of your soul just carries on life to life to life, and this is a one. But they differentiate it into three um, because they talk about three levels of this, and it's only the third um, highest aspect of the, the hun that is, is the part that is reincarnating. So does that actually mean there's three parts? No, not at all. It means there's three components 
to that. There's three um, no, components is wrong because that is part. Three functions, if you like, that the yang aspect of the soul has. Um, and ultimately, if we wanted to, uh, we could start to compare those a little bit. Maybe dot joining is not right, but they're similar to, but not exactly the same as Jiva Atman and and, uh, and the bridge to Brahma, Brahma. But it's not quite the same, you know. But but the yang aspect of soul actually is divided into three parts, and, and that's the part that reincarnates. But what interests me is the seven parts attached to it, and this is the seven parts of the Po. Now, the seven parts of the Po, or the Po, are known as the yin soul. The Po is the yin soul, the corporeal soul. And it's a part of your soul that they say breaks down when you die. So you have the yang soul that carries on after your death, life to life to life within Taoism, and then you have the yin soul that only is born into existence when you are and breaks down and dies when you do. Now, that sounds very strange, doesn't it? Because how, how is that then the soul? If something breaks down with you when you die, if the Po dissolves upon your death, how is that the soul? Um, because literally that couldn't be, because the idea of a soul is it's something that's eternal, right? The answer to this is because the Po is not the soul, not in its own right. Just like the Hun is not the soul, either, not really. The Po and the Hun together are the soul. Okay, They are together, they are the soul. That's, that's what they are. So the Po, there are seven of them. Now, the Poe are always depicted as these like crying, sad, demon things. They've got names like Poison Arrow. They've got Stink Fist. I don't think that's one. But they've got these funny names for the, for the Poe, you know. And they're sort of drawn as these demons. The Poe, the Hun are these three happy immortals. And, the, and when they depict them in their art, and the Poe are these, these weeping souls. And they're weeping because they're aware of the finality of death. And they're aware of their sort of um, uh, soon decline into the earth. You know, they're impending their impending demise. Now each of the, the seven each of the seven Po are linked to one of the key attachments um, that we have within life. So one of the Po is linked to um, sort of base desires and sexual desires. One is based on uh, the idea of attainment of food and survival. Uh, another one is based on preference, uh, preferential selection through like these things. They're basically it doesn't matter too much, but essentially they're a model of the attachments. Okay, they're a model of things we can attach to. And ultimately, those attachments are the things that then build up upon our being. Now, if you compare that to Hinduism, um, essentially that's in line with the samskaras. The Po are a model or, or the part of our being that builds that database um, of information over the course of our life. The Po are those things that they say attach to physicality and corporeality. So people think sometimes that the Po just gives us the ability to touch things. But no, let's look at the correspondences. Let's look at this not the ability to literally touch things. What are they talking about? Well, they're saying attachments to earth, physicality. Well, what's that? That's experience. That's the experiences you have. It's the Po that store these. Not necessarily memories, because memories are quite conscious. You can recall them. The Po recall those things that are uh, habitually there, like automatic, subconscious, buried within us. Okay? And then they relate it to the world of touch, physicality. What's that? Well, that's the nervous system. Then linking it again to the sense faculties. So we have, um, the Poe gives us a sense of our self of body, as, as, give ourself a sense of the body as well, our sense of feeling. So that gives us what? The physical body, um, our sense faculties, um, our physical body, our sense faculties, and our prior experiences, uh, you know, like the storehouses of our attachments. Well, that's pretty much the same as the things that weigh down the soul, way down the sense of self within Hindu teachings. And if you look at Taoist teachings, they're the same, because the seven Po are anchoring and weighing down the three Hun. 
And the three hun and the seven po have this relationship within Chinese medicine. They have this relationship within Taoism between one another where they have to remain in harmony. Um, but really, this is what they're talking about. It's the, these aspects of attachment and sense of self weighing down the soul and creating the sense of reincarnation. Now, at the point of reincarnation, um, the Po, the literal experiences you have are not there anymore. Instead, they're transferred into the Hun, which creates the karma, the weight of reincarnation that produces the next life. So it's the same thing, same thing they're discussing, um, but a different model. So within Hinduism, you have Jiva, we have Atman above that, and you have Jiva that has the Samskaras and the Vasanas. And then in Taoism, you have the relationship of the Hun and the Po, um, then go up to the next level, which actually they would call the Yuan Shen, not Shen, Yuan Shen within Taoism, but similar processes. Now within these arts, okay, there's always this idea is kept behind what they're doing. Like we, can, we couldn't really argue against mindfulness or Ting, listening, being a major component of the internal arts. Tai Chi, Qigong, uh, meditation, yoga, Hindu and Buddhist practice, like the mindfulness is a huge part of it. So they're using this idea of this process to get out of habitual action to try to shed this idea of karma. And then after this, they have all different um, self-analytical and meditative trainings to end the sense of self, to take us back to undifferentiated awareness, undifferentiated consciousness, that thing that is the root of soul. Sometimes we could say that soul is individuated and then that place above it is undifferentiated soul, like the merging with the collective, then the no longer separation of, um, essentially, dualism. Like, people don't understand what dualism is or dualistic thought. Um, it's, you get all the, I remember I read a book recently, it was like a few months ago, I think, could, it was, I can't remember the title, but it was about dualism. And it was like, <laughs> like 400 pages explaining what non-dual thought was versus dualistic thought. And it was very complex and it had lots of references. Uh, you can tell I'm very thick when I say the word references like it's stressful, can't you? But it, you know, it, was, it was written like an academic paper for 400 pages. I got through it, but by the end of it, my brain wanted to melt in a bad way. It wasn't inaccurate. I don't think. It was just wordy and very complicated. And, and you get to the end of it, and, and I'm not sure that really they explained non-dual thought versus dualism particularly well. But to me, duality is very simple. Non-dual, okay, to be dual means you and everything else. That's it. <laughs> That's what it means. There is this distinction between you and everything else. That's it. And as soon as there is a distinction between you and everything else, then you're able to form a picture and a label of something, a judgment of something. It's that which in Taoism where they said that, that you know, we don't like to name things. The named is, 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 is a problem, is, is the root of the myriad beings, the manifestations of life. They're talking about that which is dual. Non-dual means no separation between yourself and anything else. That's it if you want to make it really simple. And I'm sure non-dualistic scholars out there are clawing their skin off in horror um, because, of course, there's exceptions to that and there's more complexities, but I save you 400 pages. That's the basis of it. Now, when you can shed the majority of karma so that the soul studies to, uh, you know, so to touch on this thing we call the soul, that part of us is, is, is eternal, then it will start to merge back into undifferentiated consciousness. And this is where people start to move um, into ideas like samadhi and jhanic states or, or move into stillness or emptiness, which are very loaded terms. 
there's another podcast, the difference between stillness and emptiness. The difference in emptiness in Taoism and Buddhism because they're not the same. The difference in emptiness in Hinduism is not the same. So I, I need to talk about that. But essentially all of these sort of um, experiences that people have that we call that, that bridge into that meditative state, it, within many traditions would be called merging with the soul um, or merging with undifferentiated uh, consciousness, or the soul merging with undifferentiated consciousness. From here, um, this is where we then bridge across uh, into spirit. I'm aware that by describing it like this, it sounds very mechanical, and lots of people will be like, oh, it's too mechanical. The Eastern arts are cycl cyclical. How do you say that? Cyclical, cyclical? You know what I mean? It's like that, and then not so linear, and oh, demo so linear. Actually, the process is quite linear. I've been around these Eastern arts for like my entire life, since I was a child, and as soon as I was old enough and capable, and that's a bit of cash, to travel, then I did. And I, I traveled, and I've been, I've been to all sorts of parts of the planet and, and studied with not-so-good teachers. And the not-so-good teachers, everything was cyclical. It was. It was like, hey, man, everything's already there. The Buddha nature's already there. Just don't do anything, man. Just sit and smoke a joint and get fat, and you'll find enlightenment. But then when I went to the actual good teachers, the proper ones, with attainments, even that's demonized. I'm not even allowed to say someone's attained. Man, if you say someone's attainment, you're just chasing attainment. No, not at all. There is a skill set there. There is a quality that is attainable. If, you, if, if not, there's no point doing any of this. But when you meet those people, actually the process is very linear, horribly linear. They lay it out incredibly linear. There's a step-by-step -step process. It's just that maybe that's hard to sell. So people sell the, you're already there and you're already perfect idea instead. And that's crap. You're not already perfect. You're already complete. That's true. But you're not already perfect. Not at all. If you're already perfect, there'd be no work to do. And none of you new age people watching this, don't comment on me if you go, that's right, Demo. There is no work to do. That's not true. That's not true. You're so wrong. It's unbelievable. I'll stop arguing with someone that's not there because that's borderline insanity. So this bridge that then takes across in the spirit is then the basis of, of you know the higher aspects of the art. I'm just rambling, really, like, how to, how to draw this to a conclusion, because <laughs> I don't want to go on all night, I think. I just wanted to outline that really within these arts, this is to me the definition of spiritual. This is the definition of spiritual. Not, not um, I want to make myself feel better. Not, um, I want to be a strong, independent person or something like that. Actually, strong and independent would actually move you a little bit away from union, so maybe not the best example, but you know what I mean? All those things are psychological developments. That's what they are. That's all they are. They're just psychological things, which is great. It's brilliant, because you should enjoy life. You should feel good. You have a right to 